Hello, everyone. It's Matthew DeMello, your host of The Fiona Show, Cross-Border Solutions weekly podcast about everything transfer pricing. We've got a great show for you today. If you remember last week, we tackled traditional transactional transfer pricing methodology, and we made it super interesting if we do say so ourselves. Today is going to be no different. Well, scratch that. It will be a little different because we're going to be talking about, wait for it, transactional profit methods, but we promise it will be just as riveting. Yeah, that's right. I said riveting. Good news. The dream team is back. Andre Anoyu and Mimi Song to transfer pricing. Brainy X at Cross Border Solutions are here to give you an overview on profit-based methods and also explain some of the nuances. Andre, of course, is the VP of Global Economic Operations. Yes, that's a thing. Who heads the professional services team here at Cross Border. And Mimi is the chief economist on the professional services team. Together, they work with clients, review transfer pricing documents, and help form overall transfer pricing strategies for various companies. So who better to talk about transfer pricing methodology? Ahem. Okay, except Fiona, cross-border solutions, AI expert, of course, I was getting there. Fiona, like always, she'll be chiming in with facts and nitpicky details that are hard for mere humans to remember. Welcome, Fiona. Thanks for being here. Well... Someone has to make sure your facts check out. (laughs) Right. Now, remember, you can earn CPE credits through the Fiona Show podcast. Here's how it works. We're planting two CPE code words in this podcast. To earn CPE credits, email both code words. Again, you will need both for CPE credits to the Fiona Show. That's all one word. At crossbordersolutions.io. That's .io, not .com, and we'll send out your CPE credits. How easy is that? But before we get down to business, let's take a quick look at transfer pricing in the news. Looks like someone finally told Paraguay that it's 2019. On May 9th, the country's executive branch presented the National Congress with a draft law of transfer pricing regulations, the country's first ever official transfer pricing regs. What does Paraguay want from multinational companies? The usual. Documentation that includes info about the transactions, the risk involved, and the multinational company overall. Only companies with a gross income of 1.5 million U.S. dollars or more have to comply. While these are big-picture guidelines, the tax administration is still expected to issue specifics and clear up any ambiguity. But given that this is all a first attempt at transfer pricing regulations and the country didn't exactly reinvent the wheel, the only question we need clarified is... Paraguay, what took you so long? Panama's transfer pricing report, Form 930, is due six months after the fiscal year end. For many of you, that means June 2019. Getting ready to file? Here's a heads up. The document has changed, and the updated version requires even more information. Version 2, by the way, should be prepared contemporaneously. Requests business and financial information about the comparable companies used in your transfer pricing analysis. The more detailed, the better on that front. The specifics on transactions involving intangibles, arms 
arm's length adjustments, comparability adjustments, info on the corporation's global transfer pricing disputes, and the consolidated revenue of the multinational group. And while that information may be identical to what's required on a master and local file, guess what? You still have to prepare those too. You've heard that Spain, France, and the UK are all signing on for the digital services tax, and now the Czech Republic wants in, and they want more. While Spain and France have proposed a 3% across-the-board tax on digital services like online advertising, marketplaces, and user info, and the UK is asking for two, the Czech Republic wants, get this, 7%. The tax would only apply to multinationals with a global revenue of $750 million or more, as if that cushions the blow. The minimum for Czech Republic companies hasn't been decided, but the clock is ticking. The new tax could go into effect by mid-2020. Hi, I'm Matthew DeMello, and you may know me as the host of the Fiona Show Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. And while I love to discuss transfer pricing, this podcast isn't the only place you can hear me doing it. Cross-Border Solutions recently relaunched Transfer Pricing University, a live webinar series where you can learn about modern-day transfer pricing, everything from methodologies to comparables to preparing documentation to meet country-specific regulations. Good stuff, I know. Chief Economist Mimi Song leads the sessions. I just ask the occasional obvious question. Since our program is NASBA certified, you can earn one CPE credit for joining each session. Pretty sweet. So what are you waiting for? Join us for Transfer Pricing University every Tuesday and Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern. Classes are free, so now you really have no reason to miss it. Sign up at xbs.ai tpu. Welcome back, everyone. I'm here with the main event of today's show, Cross-Border Solutions VP of Global Economic Operations, Andre Anoyu, and our chief economist, Mimi Song, who is here to ask Andre questions about everything you need to know when it comes to traditional transactional transfer pricing methods, which sounds like a real mouthful, but I'm sure they'll be able to make sense of it. And if not, I'll see if I can chime in. Anyway, take it away, Mimi. Thank you, Matthew. So we're back with Andre. And to start it all off again, we just want to ask him a couple more probing questions about transfer pricing. Um, first and foremost, I think people would be interested to understand what are some of the most commonly asked questions by customers who you are working with on their transfer pricing? You know, I, I have to say that far and away, one of the questions that we hear the most is, and this this really speaks to the topic we'll be speaking about today, right? Profit-based analyses. Whenever we do a profit-based analysis, and they're definitely the most common ones out there, we get the question, why don't I see my competitor? You know, you're searching for comparables. Well, why am I not seeing any of my competitors as my comparables? Right. It, it, you know, and in a lot of ways, when other industries do benchmarking, which actually doesn't have the same level of rigor that transfer pricing has from a benchmarking perspective, right? There's a lot more rigor around comparability criteria and things of that nature. So most of the time, people are used to benchmarking their company against their competitors. 100%. Mm. So for those starting off or, or even thinking about transfer pricing as a career path, what advice would you have for them? 
My first piece of advice would be to read a well-laid-out report. And, you know, what, what exactly does that mean? Well, a well-laid-out report will every single time walk the reader and always think about who the reader is. It's the tax authority. So you want to walk that tax authority, that reader, through the entire documentation process. You're basically walking them through step-by-step why you did what you did and why you chose the method that you chose and why it makes sense to do each and every step along the way. And if you're just starting out in the industry, yeah, you know, you can you can easily go and start reading the the regulations from each country, but you're going to be overwhelmed and you're you're going to um miss out on the big picture, right? If you if you take a couple of these well laid out reports, it it will really paint that picture of what you're trying to do um, in a transfer pricing documentation report. And a well-laid-out report will allow you, when, when you're just starting out, either in the transfer pricing industry as a practitioner or even if you're in a tax department and, and you're new to transfer pricing, it will really give you that opportunity to learn the concept because it's justifying step-by-step step what you're doing. Right. It, it's methodical, right? It is methodical. It's like a principle-based approach. I actually love using that I term know you do. all the time. I know you do. <laughs> I try not to use it as a result. <laughs> so, you know, when it comes to transfer pricing, and the methods and the approaches, what do you think actually confuses people the most? You know, I, I think you kind of touched on this in, in your comment, right? In, in other benchmarking exercises, and at the end of the day, that's what we're doing, right? We're proving that an intercompany transaction, you can't lose sight of this, so you're proving that an intercompany transaction is a fair market price by benchmarking, a, by benchmarking it against other prices that are not manipulated, so to speak. Mm -hmm. um, and in other industries, you, you know, the, this concept of benchmarking does not have the same rigor and the same principled approach that we take in transfer pricing. And one of the key um, issues or comparability factors that we deal with, especially when it comes to profit-based methods, is this concept of functional comparability. And time and again, I think that that confuses people, um, you know, especially if you're just starting out in transfer pricing. You don't, you're not programmed to think that way, that, you know, the most important thing that I'm looking for in this exercise is to find a benchmark that is similar in terms of the functions and the that that the benchmark performs, the risks it assumes, the assets it uh, it holds, and so on. Yeah, and and functional comparability is going to be much more important when we talk about a profit-based analysis, right? That's As exactly opposed right. to a transaction-based analysis. That's exactly right. So, just for fun, though, and for our audience, what's your favorite McDonald's food item? So it it's. Not on the menu. <laughs> it's something that requires being able to uh, go back into the kitchen. 
Is that right? That's right. So it would probably be a double cheeseburger with uh, shredded lettuce and tomato added. That's, and, and, you know, just for our listeners, the, I reason, I, this. the reason I asked the question is, is there was a, a short period of time where Andre actually owned a McDonald's franchise. So, A few, right? If, I, if I'm uh, correct, we'll, we'll leave, let, we'll leave yeah, the story at that. Yeah. Let, let sleeping dogs lie. <laughs> right, right, right. So let's talk about the it's real reason. Different where, life. That's right. <laughs> Let, let's talk about transfer pricing, really. Last week, we, we, ch- we spoke about the different type of methods that are, uh, that are available for transfer pricing practitioners. So if we can do a quick recap, Andre, can you remind everyone what the different methods are? Sure. So the, the different methods fall into two two buckets, two categories. You have your transactional methods, and then you have your profit-based methods. Uh, within the transactional methods, you have the COP, or comparable uncontrolled price. You also hear there's a subset of that called the comparable uncontrolled transaction, or CUT, with a T, uh, method. Uh, and you have the cost plus and the resale price uh, methods as well. Uh, and on the profit-based side, you have um, something we call a transactional net margin method, uh, or TNMM, uh, which is akin to a comparable profits method, or CPM, which is, which is an IRS-specific term, and not many people know this, but also a Taiwanese term that they use for mm-hmm. the method. Uh, and then you also have something called a profit split method. Okay. So why don't we ask Fiona really quickly. Fiona, how do profit-based methods work? I'd be delighted. Profit-based transactions compare profitability of transactions as opposed to comparing the price of goods or services or the cost of sales. Andre, what do you think of Fiona's description? Do you want to add anything? Sure. So, you know, I, I think that the key element, which, uh, which Fiona touched on, is when whenever we use a profit-based approach, we're picking one side of that intercompany transaction and we're indirectly testing it. Uh, or, or in the case of a profit split, arguably you pick both sides of the transaction. But we're indirectly testing the transaction uh, by benchmarking the profitability of the parties involved. And that actually is what defines the tested party, right? So let's let's define what that is, because we're going to use that terminology a bit when we talk about profit-based analyses, right, Andre? We we are, yeah, absolutely. So this concept of a tested party basically says, look, you know, there's there's always a, a better side of the transaction to, to benchmark against mm-hmm. comparables, right? So yeah, you're, you're going to look at profitability. That's fantastic. Um, what's, what's the best approach? Well, let's take a, uh, a CPM, TNMM approach where you, where you basically say to the tax authority, look, I'm, I'm going to look at the profit, but I'm going to look at both parties to the transaction. I'm going to pick one that becomes my tested party, as Mimi, you mentioned. Uh, and I'm going to test that entity's or that segment of that entity's profitability against other comparables, other of that similar, tested party. Right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. That's right. Specific and, to that actual segment or a legal entity, but 
you know, we'll, we'll definitely talk about that as we go into the application of the method and, and mm-hmm. uh, think about some examples. What are the transfer pricing profit-based methods again, just as a reminder? Yeah, so you have the transactional net margin method or comparable profits method, which, which are Ken. You have the profit split method. And then just to add another layer of complexity, um, there is this concept of using the resale price and the cost plus methods as profit-based methods, right? So last week we talked about those are, are transactional, traditionally transactional methods. Right. You look at the margin, I think we used a Pepsi example, right? You look at the margin that our related party distributor earns on, on uh, purchases from the manufacturer, and then you compare it to the margin the gross margin it earns on purchases of other products from unrelated party manufacturers. Well, you know, if you, <clears throat> excuse me, if you, if you think about it, since we're using a gross margin or we're using a cost plus margin, you could compare a tested party to comparable companies' gross margins or cost plus margins. Mm-hmm. And so there is this concept that you know, in addition to using those two methods as a uh, uh, as transactional methods, you could also apply them as profit-based methods. Right, and you know, you you mentioned the transactional net margin method, the TNMM, mm-hmm. is akin to the comparable profits method, with which is actually a U.S. and Taiwanese specific method. What are the differences, if any, between the two, right? Yeah. I mean, we know they're, they, they're called something different, but... They, they are. They are, right? And so the, the TNMM is, is what, you know, the OECD put forth in their guidelines initially, and many countries adopted, pretty much every country other than the, the two we mentioned, adopted. Um, you know, it, it, in practice, they're basically the same. In theory, right, where where the OECD has uh, has differentiated, um, and and you know, in a sense, rightfully so, right? What what they've said is, look, for the, the transactional net margin method should really be applied to test the profitability of a particular transaction, right? So we we started talking about this concept of a tested party and. Um, using a, a whole legal entity or a segment of a legal entity, well, the, the OECD basically says, look, if you're gonna if you're gonna use a profitability measure mm-hmm. and some sort of ratio, whether it's an operating margin or barrier ratio, whatever, um, to compare against comparables, the the best way to ensure that you're testing your intercompany transaction and the arm's length nature of it is to use the specific financial uh, data associated with that transaction. So use the COGS associated with that transaction, use the sales related to that transaction, segment it out granularly so that you're not, um, you're not muddying the waters through any other operations of that tested party. Like and aggregating different types and of transactions. Absolutely, right. you should you should test each one separately and right. independently. In an ideal world. Right. In an ideal world, again, in practice, though, that's oftentimes the, the data are not there. It's not possible to do that, um, and you know, frankly speaking, 
it's uh, it becomes too onerous uh, in in a lot of cases to do it. Indeed, uh, and I just want to interject here for a quick second with our first CPE word. The first code word is emoji. Uh, you know those smiley faces that you put at the end of all your transfer pricing emails and communications. Back to you, Mimi. <laughs> Thank you, Matthew. So the transaction on that margin method. Let's let's dig into that a little bit better, right? Or the TNMM. Explain to our audience how does that work? Sure. So once you've selected your tested party, well, I, I guess I should take a step back. Before you select your tested party, what what you need to do is you need to look at, at what we call a functional analysis um, that pertains to the intercompany transaction at hand. And so you need to analyze the functions performed, the risks assumed, and the assets employed by the parties to the transaction. Once you've done that, you're in a better position to choose the tested party, right? Because what what the regulations say is, you know, for you to be able to, to uh, accurately gauge whether a tested party's profitability is in fact arm's length, you can't necessarily use a tested party that owns a lot of intangibles, is very complex and does a whole bunch of functions because at the end of the day, you're not going to be able to find comparables right. for that tested party. The more complex the, something is, the, the, hard, the more unique it becomes. Sure, and, and you can't control for all the different characteristics that you're trying to control exactly for, right? right. That's mm -hmm. exactly right, right? So, so you then select your tested party based on those criteria and um, you, you then look for those comparable companies that are similar in terms of the functions that they perform the risks they assume and the and the assets they hold to that tested party and you do this by using uh, publicly available databases uh, you search using a principled approach and you uh, and these are well-known names in the industry that have compiled data, right? Like Dun & Bradstreet, Standard & Poor's. There, there's this wealth of, of information on companies and each of their profitability through their financial statements. And, you, uh, and also qualitative information, right? And so through that qualitative information, you find the best available comparables that, that are most similar to your tested party. Right. And talking about that just yep. really quickly goes back to your point about you're looking for functionally comparable companies. 100%. Right. 100%. Yeah. And so when we're searching for these comparables or comps, as, as we call them, because we're lazy. <laughs> uh, Along with all the acronyms and transfer pricing. Yeah, well, because we're lazy. <laughs> Um, you know, when we're, we're, when we're looking for comps, that, that's just it, right? We, we are never looking for, I shouldn't say never, but that product comparability is the last thing we, we look for. You know, then, then we're kind of, you know, doing a jig because we're, that means we've found a ton of functionally comparable comps, right? Mm -hmm. First thing we look for is, are we, um, are we finding companies that do the same thing and assume similar risks and, and 
or, or bear the, the same kinds of risks and um, in, in similar geographies. Uh, and, and of course, we have to take into account, right, like, like we always do, what, what do the various tax authorities care about? Some tax authorities say, I, like the IRS, right, I prefer public comparables. Mm -hmm. You know, I, do I care that, you know, they're in the exact same country as, as your tested party? No, I get it, right? Pump, there's only so many public comparables out there. There's, right. you know, 50,000 publicly traded companies out there. So be it. You know, if you expand out to a region, you expand out to a region. Other countries take a, a very different approach, right? They, they say, no, you know, the, your comparables need to, need to be in the same geography as your tested party. Um, and it's not okay to expand out to a region. Or if you do, you need to show me that you tried to, to look for local comparables first. And so there, right, you, you, you take a different approach. You look at privately held companies, of which there are many more. And, um, and, and again, you're looking for that functional comparability. So just as, as an example, Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, if if you have that that Pepsi distributor, um, wherever it might be, maybe you have worldwide Pepsi distributors. Right. You're you want to find comparables that you know. What's most important is it most important that they distribute soda, soda? <laughs> or is it most important? Or or well, I I shouldn't say distribute soda. Is it most important that they're in the soda business, mm -hmm. or is it most important that um, or beverage business or food business, or is it most important that they are distributors that have similar functions and 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 you know have inventory management functions and uh, logistics functions and things of that nature to the distributor that you're trying to benchmark and it's it's the latter and I can't impress enough how how important that is. Right. I mean, you know, that goes to basic premises of economics. And going back to thinking about my economics courses yeah. in, in school, who knew that it would be so real that the idea is, you know, in, in, in the economy, in the economy, if you're talking about a business that enters into a certain industry or a certain line of business, then you have competition that enters to the extent that you make excess profit that gets pushed down until... Really, you know, competitors don't want to enter that market because now you've reached the state of That's equilibrium, right? Because right? it's just, it's so fascinating because the idea is, is a basic economic principle that a company performing ABC functions, if they're all performing ABC functions, they should all be making very similar returns. But even actually, even even right there, uh, I do want to ask. So that's even before we're getting into choosing the best comparables to put forth the strongest narrative. That's just the basics. You wouldn't want to you, you look at competitors necessarily to, to just yeah. even fulfill. Or you you know when you're doing a transfer pricing analysis, you might look at competitors from an industry perspective, but right. that doesn't dictate the comparable companies you would use mm -hmm. to test or analyze the intercompany transaction. Yeah. As you've been explaining, but that's just to meet the criteria of even getting uh, comparables that work, not even before you get into which are the best comparables, which is just the nature of that question. Sure, sure. And and so, you know, that that's part of the process, right, Matt? So you, you know, you start out with this pool of, of comparables and 
some, many of them potentially are not functionally comparable. And so those, you, you start whittling the, you know, qualitatively whittling those down and you wind up with really your, your best set of, uh, of comparables that are functionally comparable um, to, to your tested party. Now, you know, to, to Mimi's point, right, or to, to the point we've been addressing about product comparability, you may be in a position where maybe you can find soda distributors, not just any distributors or distributors of food product, you might even get to the point where it's beverages or soda, right? But mm -hmm. that's, that's a nice-to-have. That's not a must-have. So I think this is where you're, you're coming from with your right. question. The, the overarching issue is, are they all distributors? Are they all functionally comparable? Because mm -hmm. if they're not, if they're manufacturers or they have, you know, a bunch of value-added services that your tested party doesn't have, um, assembly functions, things like that, after-sales services. Maybe they lease vending machines. Who knows, right? You don't want to use those as comparables because those different functions carry a different level of profitability than your tested party. And... The tax authority will will automatically say, you know, you, you're comparing apples to oranges. Right, but you know, but let's take a practical approach to this because that theoretical framework of finding the perfect comparable is is an ideal scenario. But in practice, it, most companies end up having to differentiate themselves some way, right? Sure, sure, hundred percent. You you know, and, and that's why you know, saying that you'll find perfect comparables or even close to perfect comparables. That, that's, I guess, the point I'm making with mm -hmm. the, you know, can you find soda distributors? Well, even there, right, you're, you're going to have some nuances, some differences. They're not going to be perfect comparables. And it's a luxury to, to, to near perfection when it comes to, to comparability, right? Right. You're going to find slight differences in... Um, in what the comparables do. A global pandemic, a grim economic forecast, feeling the squeeze, an R&D tax credit can help lower your burn. If you qualify, the IRS and some state governments will give you a tax credit equal to 10% of your company's spend on development activities. You can even take the credit against payroll taxes if you're in the red. All you have to do is claim it. So what's stopping you? If an expensive application process is turning you off, sorry, now you really have no excuse. Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven R&D tax credit software eliminates the need for pricey consultants and allows you to apply for R&D credits all over the world for one low fee. After all, why should you have to spend your whole R&D tax credit on getting your R&D tax credit? It's your money. Keep more of it with Cross Border Solutions, the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. Request a demo today. Visit xbs.ai/rd. That's xbs.ai/rd. And I think that's why the profit-based analysis is available and, and why it's very typically used because it get, it allows for the user to have this margin of error. hundred percent. And, and you know, by, by virtue of the fact that you're looking at an arm's length range, right, it, it also it contributes to that margin of error, right? I think the way I look at the arm's length range 
and we're we're kind of stepping ahead. You know, we, you know, I guess I should I should pause and and let's just walk the the listener through. Right. What do you do with these comparables? Yeah. So you found the the set of, found these companies. of companies. What right? does that mean? That's right. <laughs> so so then right. Let's go back to what we were talking about in terms of the information that's available in these databases. Well, you have the you have qualitative data. So if you you've used that qualitative data to get your set of comparables. Now what do you do? Well, now this is where the financial statements come into play, and you can create um, a ratio that speaks to the profitability of each of those companies over the course of a period of time, whether that be one year or three years, five years. Again, it depends on the country. Mm -hmm. um, and these ratios, or profit level indicators, as we call them, um, serve as your unit of comparison. Right. Right? And so you're able to then... And since you have multiple companies as comparables, you create an arm's length range out of these observations. Right. Well, let's ask Fiona real quick. What are the various profit level indicators that are available? There are two net profit indicators, the net cost plus margin and the net resale minus margin. So, you know, based on the typical profit level indicators that Fiona identified, Andre, Tell us a little bit about the most commonly applied PLIs that we use. By the way, it's another acronym yeah. in the <laughs> overall scheme of things here. Yeah, it, it, if it's the rule of thumb, right? If it's three words, make it an acronym. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, so, you know, operating margin or OM, there's a two-word acronym mm -hmm. for you, uh, is a very commonly applied uh, PLI. I'd say it's probably, it's, if it's not the most, it's it's up there. Um, and that basically, that, that looks at the operating income uh, before tax, before interest, before, so when we say operating income, I think that, that's a key point, right? Whenever we're looking at a, at a TNMM or CPM, we're we're looking at what is the income derived from operations, right? Again, if we're comparing to other companies that are functionally similar, we don't want to take into account things like income from investments or things that are not what we're what we're trying to benchmark, right? right. If we're looking for distributors, we want anything related to that distribution function included. And that goes both on the income side and on, on the cost side, right? And so the operating, getting back to, to operating margin, the operating margin is simply the operating income divided by sales, by revenue, net sales, mm -hmm. for that matter. Um, and um, another common PLI would, would be the net cost plus or markup on full cost. Um, and that's same principle, right? You use that, that operating income um, numerator, but instead of dividing it by revenue or by, by some sort of sales function, you divide it by both your cost of sales or cost of goods sold and your operating expense. And so when is an operating margin appropriate versus a net cost plus? Market? Sure, sure. So the the best way to... The way I like to look at it is, 
you know, you, you always, again, when you're thinking of a benchmark, you, you need some sort of um, uncontrolled mechanism, right, or independent variable, if you will, um, as part of the equation, right? And so it's, the, the best way to think about it is you, you want that denominator to be independent of the intercompany price, and so an operating margin is great for, for distributors, resellers. You know, when, when you're testing, when your tested party is the, the purchasing entity or a segment of the purchasing entity, right, the, the, and it's selling to third parties, the, the beauty of the operating margin is then you're, you're testing the return on sales to third parties. Right. Whereas with a, with a net cost plus, let's say, you're, um, you know, you, if you're, let's take the other side of the coin, right, a manufacturer or service provider, but let, let's focus on a manufacturer for simplicity. As a manufacturer, if you're a tested party and you're selling to a related party distributor, your costs are, are that independent variable, and so it, it makes sense to use that net cost plus uh, as, your, as your PLI, as your profit level indicator. Between the two different um, profit level indicators and the application, it makes a lot of sense, right? Let's 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 think about that in terms of you know an actual scenario. You said manufacturer distribution. What about a services transaction, right? Sure. So so services transaction similar to a manufacturer, right? The way I would look at a service provider is where you know what I, I guess another way to look at it, Mimi. Mm -hmm is in addition to this concept of using, you know, having the denominator be an independent variable is having, having the ratio be a measure of the function performed or the value um, being derived from that, from that uh, activity, right? And so what, what, what am I saying by that? And a service provider is a, is a perfect uh, example, right? A, a service provider incurs a bunch of co people costs, mm -hmm. labor costs, right, in performing their function. So it makes perfect sense to use something like a net cost plus to, um, to benchmark the provision of services, right? If, if, you're, if you're saying, look, you know, my people cost me X and I'm making a markup on X, you know, of 5%, it makes perfect sense to use that X as, as your benchmark when you then look at comparable companies that are providing services and you know what, what kind of markups are they earning on their costs rather than looking at, at some sort of um, PLI that's, that's based on revenue or operating assets, something, um, something that, that's not driving that, that function. Right, and so if I could repeat that back in a slightly different way, the service provider, you know, in a real-life situation, a third-party service provider, they're going to charge their customer something to recuperate their costs. 100%. And recuperate an element of profit, right? That's right. Yeah. I, I love how you can always take <laughs> ten sentences of mine and make it one. <laughs> it's a talent. <laughs> So let's talk a little bit about the whole application of the resale price versus and cost plus method in the context of a profit-based analysis, right? Well, this this is where the fun begins, <laughs> right? So, 
So the the challenge with applying them, um, or or you know relying on them for for documentation. Let, let's 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 say this right. They're they're not our favorite. They have their place, you know, and oftentimes. Mm-hmm. It, it comes down to segmentation of operating expenses and whether we can do that reliably. But if we had our druthers, we'd much rather use an operating income level, profit level indicator through through a TNMM method or right. a CPM method. Right. And why is that? And and that's that's because um, we are able to mitigate any sort of accounting difference that might be happening either from comparable to comparable or between the comparables and the tested party. Mm-hmm. Right? When you're only taking into account a, a margin at the gross level and you're only taking into account cost of goods sold, you, you really, you just don't have that much visibility to really ensure that um, you're comparing apples to apples, but when you all of a sudden bring in operating expenses into the mix, and you're, you know, it, it's kind of a wash. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, does, it doesn't really it matter. Does, at the end of the day, right. right? It doesn't matter where where cost is classified um, for for a comparable or between a comparable and the tested party, right? Because you're taking both into account. Yeah, but it's pretty important on the gross level because hugely you're important. only taking cost of goods sold into account. Hugely important. And that problem probably gets exacerbated when we use private company data. No question. Yeah. So, so you know, in, in practice, I, I like to think about the modified resale price or cost plus as almost a different profit level indicator in some ways. In many ways, yeah. I mean, a, a lot of people look at it that way, right? I mean, it, it's... You know, it, is it really a different method? No, right? I mean, you're still doing your functional analysis, picking the best tested party, finding your your comparables that are functionally comparable. Um, it's just a different ratio, and and so yeah, in a sense, it it's just a different PLI. But you know, the the, the those two margins are not, um, you know specifically part of, of what you would consider a CPM or a TNMM. So they're, they're kind of in this limbo state. Right. So, you know, what are some of the pros and cons of the transactional net margin method? I mean, we, we've talked a little bit about the cons of the cost plus resale mm-hmm. price, and that's mm-hmm. easy to identify. Mm-hmm. We didn't really talk about any downsides associated with the TNMM at this point. Oh, there are none, maybe. <laughs> it's the best thing since sliced bread. Well, you know, I, Dr. Silva would think so yes (laughs) yes but i did detect some sarcasm in there am i wrong uh no well yes and no right so so you know what are the pros the the, and you know i think mimi you mentioned this earlier right it it is the most commonly used method and, and it's the most commonly used method for a reason it's the most commonly used method because it it's the easiest, well, I shouldn't say the easiest, but it's the most practical to apply, mm-hmm. right? So, and, and, you know, in last week's podcast, we, we talked a little bit about, on the transactional method side, why don't we see those that often? And we don't see those that often for a variety of reasons that we talked about last week. They're challenging to apply. They have strict comparability requirements. Oftentimes, 
the data just aren't there, right? You just don't sell the same stuff uh, to or provide the same services to third parties as you do uh, to your um, related parties. And um, with a TNMM, you, 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 you take that out of the equation, right? With the, with the TNMM or CPM, you're basically saying, look, you know, I'm going to look at one side. It doesn't really matter whether I sell the same stuff or do the same things for third parties or not. It, what matters is do I, ha do I have one side of the transaction where I can find similar comps for uh, and, um, and benchmark its profitability, thereby proving that my, my underlying transaction is arm's length. The, the con, ironically enough, is, is the same thing, right? The con is that, you know, it's an indirect measure, and it's only as good as how narrowly you can slice the data to show for the tested party to show that um, or to relate it to the intercompany transaction. And that goes, um, that goes back to what we were saying, right? When, when you... When you look at a tested party, um, don't automatically use the whole entity because if you if you use the whole entity, you are skewing its profitability. It, it does other things potentially. But on the flip side, you know, if you try to segment that entity, how reliable are you segmenting that's, operating expenses that's right. and, and things of that nature? The irony of it all. Uh, but one question, at least on my mind so far in the in the conversation, is: Do certain businesses typically lean towards certain methods, uh, manufacturers, for example, or, or distributors? Yeah, so that's a good question, Matt. Right? So I wouldn't necessarily say that that it um, varies by by function or, or well, yeah, by function, right? I, I would say really the the driving factors of whether whether companies use one one method or one type of method over the other is really what what's available what what are what are the facts and circumstances uh around that transaction if if you have the same transaction with third parties that you that you do with with related parties or if you're able to find public sources of data between two third parties uh of similar transactions um to your Intercompany transaction by all means, you know, transactional method makes sense. Um, but more times than not, that's not the case, and you wind up with the profit-based approach. Yeah, and, you know, if I were to just generalize it a little bit, I might say for intangibles, a lot of times we apply a cut method, right, and look for license agreements and. For tangible goods or services, usually rely on a comparable profits method or TNMM, uh, and then well, you know, for loans as well, I would say for loans, you you really can't apply a profit-based approach. Right. Yeah, right? I mean that would loan, be like super indirect. Yeah, oh my gosh, <laughs> right? I mean, it's like, oh, how do you say? It's very difficult to say that the loan in and of itself is what drives the profitability. Yeah, of, especially of if we're looking party. at PLIs before <laughs> right. Yeah, that's and, right. That's right. <laughs> so probably doesn't work. That's okay. So let's ask Fiona really quickly. Fiona, what are the other methods that are commonly applied? Great question. The TNMM most common is the most commonly used method, followed by the comparable uncontrolled price, CUP, method, 
than the profit split method. So Fiona method mentioned also a profit split method, and normally we don't like to touch this topic with a 10-foot pole, but let's, let's talk about it a little bit, this idea of this profit split method. Because truthfully, in this post-BEPS era, most people have commented to basically say that all of these initiatives around the world are moving towards a more pro of a profit split approach. Yeah, well, I mean, the the question is, is it if it pro is it profit split based on the arm's length standard, or is it just formulary apportionment? But, <laughs> uh, who, who knows? So, um, you know, you're right, Mimi. We we don't always like to touch it because it can get complex and it can get subjective uh, to some extent. But to your point, it, it, it can be pretty sound um, mm -hmm. when, when applied properly, right? And so, so the, the, the basic principle uh, with a profit split is, is you're essentially saying, look, each entity, rather than testing one side of the transaction, mm -hmm. you know, each, each entity is contributing something to that intercompany transaction. So we should really be testing both. And we should we should be when we're testing both, we should be saying, look, based based on what each one contributes, or based on what each one does as a as a what we call like a routine function. You know, if one's a manufacturer and one's a distributor, um, you know, yeah, sure. So the manufacturer might own some, maybe they own some R and D intangible. You know, they've performed some R and D creating some patents and other kinds of intangibles on the distribution side. Perhaps the distributor actually does some local marketing that contributes to intangible uh, or intellectual property on their side, right? And so what do you do there? Well, at the end of the day, it, it's pretty, it, again, are you going to find comparables for, you know, those unique activities or for those those unique assets that they hold no right but what you can do is you can say well what does a, a plain vanilla distributor earn um with with no you know unique intangibles or very little unique intangibles and what does a a plain vanilla manufacturer earn and by doing that you're able to at least say okay well you know the manufacturer should earn 5%, the distributor should earn 3%. You can take those percentages out of, you know, you can, you can almost put those to the side and say, these entities should earn at least this. And then anything that they earn above and beyond this, we can, we can pull together and then split according to the the value that they're contributing to those intangibles or, or to, to anything above and beyond their routine um, activities. Right, right. I mean, I think the concept, in essence, is really splitting the entire system profit across the value chain of contributors, That's right? right. That's right. You hear that a lot these days where, to your point, post-BEPS, right? Every, I, I think it's... it's not surprising, right? Every jurisdiction we we talk about this on a daily basis. Every jurisdiction wants their their fair share, and so how do you do that? Well, you you kind of say, well, what does the value chain look like? Make sure that everyone who's contributing to that value chain is getting the return 
associated with that function in the value chain? You know, can I be honest? I actually, putting my economist hat on, <laughs> if I could apply the profit split, I actually think it's very applicable in almost every situation because in real in the real world, there, what it goes back to one of the earlier points I was making, I think companies always have to differentiate themselves. There's always some additional sort of creation of value in, in the market. Even within a function, yeah. Even within any tested party and its function, there's, there's some nuance and there's some value creation that yeah, differentiates you from your comparable. Yeah, and it's so hard to bifurcate a function and isolate it as manufacturing versus distribution you know, Absolutely. Just in, in real life, right? Absolutely. But at the same time, listen, I put my practical hat back on. I get it. The availability of data a lot of times drives what type of analysis we are able to perform. And, you know, truthfully, there are times when we apply these profit-based methods and the results look like it shows non-arm's-length results. But in reality, that doesn't always mean that the transactions are actually not at arm's length, right? That's right. That's right. You always have to dig a little bit further. There's, there's clearly a bigger story at hand, some adjustments that need to be applied, some economic rationalization to explain you know, within the context of the narrative and analysis, why this transfer pricing arrangement is, in fact, more arm's length, perhaps, than, you know, your typical cost plus remuneration mm -hmm. situation. Mm -hmm. Andre, really appreciate your time again. I think this was extremely informative. I will hand it back to you, Matt. Note to multinational companies everywhere, if you think the coronavirus has affected your bottom line, take a look at how it's devastated the economies of governments around the world. And where do you think tax authorities will look to make up for all that lost revenue? That's right, your transfer pricing. You can't afford to be non-compliant, but then you probably can't afford to pay for an overpriced consultant who bills by the hour either. Oops, sorry, big four. We've got the answer. Cross-border solutions, AI-powered transfer pricing software keeps you in compliance by preparing accurate, hyper-localized reports that protect you from transfer pricing audits, penalties, and adjustments. And our technology is available for one flat fee, a fraction of what you'd pay a big-name consultant. Again, apologies, Big Four. Stay in compliance and on budget with cross-border solutions, AI-driven transfer pricing software. It's no wonder we're the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. There we go again. I'm so sorry, Big. You know what? Wait, who am I kidding? Sign up for a free demo of cross-border solutions transfer pricing technology today at xbs.ai slash tp that's xbs.ai slash tp well that just about ends our discussion for today andre and mimi thank you so much for being here and for tackling this two-part podcast you've made transfer pricing methodology far less intimidating right fiona well, I wasn't intimidated at the start. Of course you weren't. Listeners, if you have any questions, post them on our Facebook page. That's The Fiona Show XBS. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and get the latest scoop on all things transfer pricing every week. Until next time, be well and remember to choose your spouse, your friends, and your transfer pricing methodology very carefully. Very carefully.